90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I am really hot. It's hot. <laughs> Record highs the last few days. All what? across our area. Oh, my goodness. 70s um, in December. Yeah, 80s in some spots. This is insane. So I will say that on the Weather Service page, because I'm one of those people that clearly visit it every day, they always have this day in weather. You know, I, I don't know if all Weather Service pages, I don't think they all do this. but So the Norman one does, and they always show, like talk about some cool storm or something that happened. And so they talked about the big snowstorm that we had in, man, was it 2012? Something like that. And very ominously at the end of this paragraph where we had gotten like nine to 12 inches of snow, it said, interestingly, <laughs> the weather the week before was in the mid to upper 70s, breaking many high temperature records. <laughs> Yep, I, I was thinking this reminded me of the year that we had the New Year's Eve tornado rip through uh, here. I, so I thought that was very ominous of the Weather Service, and yeah. it definitely made it look like they're in charge of the weather in terms of making it, is all I'm saying. I mean, if if it happens, if you get a bunch of snow next week, you'll know. Yeah. Yes. We're watching you guys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> so yeah, yep, that's how it's been. Um, I don't have any finals this, this year, so I don't have really anything to complain about. So there's that. So you can't complain about grading for the first time ever? No, I have papers to grade, (laughs) Uh. (laughs) but no finals. And because I have like so long between when grades are due and them turning it in, I don't actually think I'm going to complain. So yeah, you're going to do it all the two days before. It doesn't matter. It still feels like I've <laughs> So yeah, so don't don't, you know, blow my high right now. <laughs> yeah. So that's how that's how that's been going. Um, have you done anything exciting? Oh, I wanted to ask you, how was your pumpkin beer? Was it great? Um, I'm going to I'm going to settle on pretty good. <laughs> It is better than last year's pumpkin beer. It is firmly drinkable. I'm not in love with it, but everybody else seems to really like it. I was going to say, but are you in love with like pumpkin stuff though? Not really. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, you're a bad, a bad judge of this. (laughs) Now the chocolate oatmeal stout that has cacao soaked in vodka got kegged last weekend. Oh my goodness. So I'm excited for that one. Mm-hmm. Okay. That it sounds smelled good. wonderful. <laughs> Have you lathed your own taps? I just want to know this. <laughs> no, but we do have a plan to put taps on the keyser, and the plan is to make them out of aluminum billet. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was. <laughs> Either that or if I can find like at an airplane auction some junk throttles and stuff, I might do oh. it like throttles off a plane. Oh, I appreciate that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Great. I yeah, have that so. off, on my list <laughs> to ask you because, yeah. <laughs> no, and I'm actually up at my shop tonight, so we'll see how the acoustics are here. Uh, you know, they sound really good. Uh, that's what I'm going to say right off the bat from my end. 
Sounds real good. Mm, maybe I should do it from here instead of my dining room table more. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't be able to hear me if I were at my dining room table. I just, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, speaking of, well, not speaking of dining room tables, speaking of up at the shop. Yeah. So I spent the day on the road as well. Um, and I went to our neighbors to the north and had to, or was invited to do a colloquium at Oklahoma State. And there's been a lot of stuff in the news lately about Oklahoma. I know you don't care, John, but it's a really big deal, the whole Lincoln Riley business. And then we lost to OSU. And then I had to turn around and five days later, give a talk there. (laughs) It was rough. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) I didn't even put University of Oklahoma on my title page because I said, it's been rough. I don't need you guys to make fun of me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was pretty good. So uh, I did do that. And I thought that we haven't really talked about what I talked about up there and that maybe we should talk about it tonight. Yeah. So this is magnetostratigraphy or another form <laughs> of magnetic magic. <laughs> so exactly. Um, and I don't want to get into too many details of, you know, the actual like data that I was talking about tonight, but, um, I thought that we could just talk about like what magnetostratigraphy is, because when you say paleomagnetism, magnetostratigraphy is actually a little bit different and that seems confusing. And it was always confusing to me and it's confusing when I teach it as well. (laughs) Right. So with magnetostratigraphy, I mean, I've never done Magstrat, but I've seen some Magstrat columns, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I don't recall seeing any directions on them. I just recall Ooh. seeing colors. Yes, exactly. Now you don't have to jump on jump on us. It's not like some weird color scheme. It's just black and white. <laughs> Unlike right. the explanation I'm going to give. <laughs> and I, I mean, my interpretation of, of it has always been: you stick the rock in a magnetometer, and you say, "Is the polarity?" Up or down? Yeah. Next. Yeah. No, no thermal DMAG, no alternating field DMAG, no anything other than stick it in up or down. Okay. So now we're off a little bit because there could be a remnant magnetization signature in there. So you still have to DMAG it all the way. Oh, really? Yes. Because you want to know that, so if you just stick it in and read it, that's its total magnetization, but that total magnetization could be the result of two different magnetizations, two vectors added together. So you have to make sure that it's not vector addition. So you actually do have to keep going. So then why not go all the way on to... Ziderfelds and all the P Maggie wonderfulness. All that happens. That all still happens. So do people use that or do they just throw it away and plot their black and white columns? Yeah. Just plot the black and white columns. (laughs) Paleo magic. Okay. So we're, we're stripping away a lot of useful data that we worked very hard to collect. Very hard to collect. <laughs> See, I, okay. I thought this was because you could do it without having to do a full DMAG. You know, I bet you could take like a handheld or maybe not handheld, but suitcase style magnetometer out to the field and be like, boop. So you could do that. 
you could do that and you could get an idea. But because, <laughs> okay, because it's called like paleo magic, <laughs> we have a lot of sort of like quality controls associated with this. And so like one of those quality controls is you always need to n- understand the nature of the magnetism. So even though I don't, in Magstrat, you don't care about direction. You don't care about the declination direction. I don't care about the compass direction that that magnetic vector is pointing. I only care if it's pointing up or down. That's it. But I need to know that there's only that one magnetization in there. And I have to know whether that magnetization is the only magnetization the rock got, or are there some magnetizations from beforehand that some remnant magnetizations So that's the paleomagnetic part that are in that rock too. So you still have to characterize the entire rock. So just a way to sleep better knowing that you've, you've really done, you haven't fooled yourself. Do due diligence. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, even though all I care about is up or down, all the same work still gets done. (laughs) Interesting. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Isn't it? And so, I will say that in some cases, if you can't like, you need to orient the rocks, right? We've talked a lot about like what the orienter looks like, how you orient paleomagnetic samples. Technically, you don't have to orient these samples, really. You just have to know which way is up. Okay, yeah, because you don't, okay, you don't care about directions. So you just know this was the t- top of the core, this was the bottom of the core, and you move right. on. So, so that's a little te- less work. Technically that, but I don't know why you wouldn't if you could. You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't you gather that data? It's not any quicker, really, to not gather it. So. I mean, if there are hunters with deer rifles standing behind you, (laughs) wanting you off the land, as we have experienced. That's never happened. (laughs) Telling you that deer don't like chainsaws. (laughs) Number one, that guy doesn't know every deer in the forest. (laughs) Some of them might like chainsaws. Okay, that case, up or down, would have been just fine. (laughs) I think that's about all we got. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So that's a different podcast story. Um, So, so yeah. So you don't have to do it, but we still do do it just for that due diligence. What you don't have to do in Magstrat is you don't have to take like 500 samples at every site. Oh, okay. So you you do your due diligence, but you throw redundancy out. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, that's how we do it. As um, opposed to paleomagnetics, where you don't do due diligence because you can't, but you have redundancy. Can't. So much redundancy. <laughs> so I want everyone to take away from this episode is that, yeah, my entire life is built on a house of cards. <laughs> that are really the same cards, but we look at the sides differently. Ah. <laughs> So true. On to that fun paper. Uh, <laughs> no, no, this is this is very analogous to. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> when I was learning about seismic, like you're always presented, this is seismic refraction. This is how seismic refraction works. Mm-hmm. This is seismic reflection. This is how seismic reflection works. And then you go out into the field and you realize it's the same hammer and the same geophones. <laughs> it it all happens all the time. <laughs> You're just paying attention to one part of it. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I never thought about how that gets taught like that. 
Oh, I, I was confused for a solid, I'm going to say half semester to a semester <laughs> about this. But where's the refraction source? <laughs> a- exactly. How is that different from the reflection source? <laughs> That's amazing. Hmm. Yeah. So basically same thing. <laughs> is it but- a magnetostratigraphic <laughs> sample or a? Paleomagnetic sample. Yeah, see, so like deep down, I'm still a paleomagnetist. So this is my first magstrat, um, for well, my first foray into magstrat. And I'll ask like my advisor at the time about it. He's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> like, what do you mean you don't know? Like, you've done paleomagnetics forever. And he's like, oh, that's a totally different thing, though. Uh, so the totally different thing part is, I mean, okay, so. You have a succession of strata. Okay. Great. All right. So I've got a bunch of layers of it. Does it have to be the same rock or different rock or can it be no. either? No, it can be either. It can okay. be either. Um, what's important here is what are okay, what are we trying to look at? We're trying to find where Earth's magnetic field has shifted through time, right? So if you're looking at the strata. And you're at the bottom and you got the top. So you got a 10 meter section that you want to um, investigate. And you expect that you're going to have, you know, three or four reversals in here, just based on the regional understanding of what age these rocks are. So you're going to go in and you're going to first, (laughs) we'll talk about sampling first. So you're going to want to take samples, but in a traditional paleomagnetic sense, as you've drilled with me on numerous occasions, you know, you have your little site and you get as many cores as you can, like eight to 10 clustered around, just wherever you can drill them roughly, right? That's how that works. Yeah, exactly. So you, mm-hmm. you're getting that redundancy. I would say something what, like uh, an eight or 10 inch diameter circle. You try to get those maybe eight cores. Yeah, something like that. And, you know, ideally, you could get a couple of specimens from each core sample. So ideally, they're, you know, five centimeters or something like that long. Okay, with Magstrat, what am I interested in? I'm interested in capturing these polarity changes of Earth's magnetic field. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to march straight up this section and this case, this 10 meter section, and I'm going to drill cores. This is sort of based on lithology. You have to think about it a little bit, but something like a meter apart, just straight up. You can drill one core, which is what people frequently do. I'm more, since I'm more paleomagnetically inclined, I tried to take a couple, two or three, every meter, just straight up. And that's it. You just make this line up the rock. I am very surprised that it's not like every, you know, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to switch units on you. I'm like every foot. Uh, right. Um, I was surprised at this too. And it really depends. There's a lot more, there's a lot more you need to think about sedimentologically when you're doing magstrat or, I mean, not just sedimentologically, str- stratigraphically, I guess, because you can do magstrat in lavas too. Um that you need to think about to plan that spacing because something you need to realize is that earth's magnetic field doesn't flip on a schedule, right? <laughs> like, yeah. You'd have no idea where these should be. Like, 
we actually have no idea. And also, what you want to make sure in that stratigraphic section is that there are no unconformities. Ooh, missing time. That could, because you're assuming that up, uh, up section is analogous to up time. Yes, exactly. The other thing that you're sort of assuming, and this isn't always, you know, the exact assumption, but you have to sort of assume that you don't have any, I mean, these are paraconformities in sedimentary rocks, any unnecessarily long hiatuses between deposition. So it's not just erosion you're worried about. You're worried about long periods of non-deposition because if you're not depositing and you have a a whole, you know, a whole cron of a polarity that you didn't deposit in, well, then you're not truly capturing what's happening in the Earth's magnetic field through that section. So you have to know a little bit about sedimentation rate as well. Okay, so sedimentation rate is sort of like on the old, when we recorded data on tapes, if you wanted to record the data with fire and finer time resolution, you ran the tape faster. Mm-hmm, right, yeah, exactly. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so the, you deposit sediment faster, you get a better time resolution. You deposit it slower, that same meter might be 100,000 years instead of 50. Right, and so now maybe you're, you only need to sample every, you know, two meters because your sedimentation rate was slow or if it was you know, because your sedimentation rate was, yes, yes, slow, fast, fast. Sorry, I'm going to get those confused. <laughs> yeah, so the and faster it deposits, the, the less frequent you need to sample. The faster it deposits, the less frequent, yeah, because you got a big section of it. Yeah, um, you know, versus the other way. So that's something you need to take into account. And how easy is it to determine sedimentation rate, John? I mean, dartboards help. It is very hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's very difficult unless because even if you know, okay, this was a deltaic setting. Well, what kind of delta? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, did you have Yes, correct. <laughs> there are so many different things. And like you gotta have water in a hole to deposit sediments generally. Okay. You don't always have to have water, but usually. And so, you know, rivers of vols. Yeah. How long did it take this river to come back and start depositing it again? Is that too long a time period? Is that too long of a unconformity surface to do it? So to me, magnetostratigraphy is impossible. <laughs> and yet I find myself with a published paper in geology about magnetostratigraphy. <laughs> so. So, so, so why not? I mean, okay. Other than the fact that it would be more work, why not sample every four inches? And just oversample like crazy. Because it's more work. So some of the some of the sections that people work on are kilometers long. That's why. They need more grad students. <laughs> and more drills. <laughs> yeah. So it's there's a lot more that goes into that planning than, hey, let's go plug this rock and see if there's a magnetic signature. You really that is have definitely to. how PMAG works. Sometimes. Oh, ninety-eight <laughs> percent of the time. <laughs> you're driving and you're like, "That looks like a nice piece of rock." Dude, it's so true. I could drill that rock. <laughs> Let's drill it. Oh, look, there's something to talk about. <laughs> or as the case with uh, a really nice outcrop that we drilled in Colorado, you get back and you're like, "Is this rock?" Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> did, did, did we somehow draw plaster of Paris? Exactly. Oh, man. So sad. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this one, you need to come in with a plan and a much better idea of what the environment of deposition was. I mean, it's real hard to do sedimentation rates. That's just how it is. And the older you get, the harder it is to understand the processes, I think. So, and the worst of a record of the geologic polarity timescale that we have. So, uh, yeah. So that makes it very difficult. So you have to take all that stuff into account when you're sampling and also when you're interpreting this. And the other thing is that some people might be thinking if they're trying to follow along with this is, how do I know? So, okay, in my 10 meter example, say my first three samples have reversed polarity. Okay, so they're negative. That's the opposite of how Earth's field is today. So today, Earth's field, the magnetic field lines come in at the North Pole, and we call that positive or normal. And normal out because of, it's here when we're here. No right other now. reason. <laughs> Correct, yes. <laughs> Just because that's how it is now. Um, and out at the South Pole. And so that's normal. So the reverse is the opposite. It's going out of the North Pole and into the South Pole. So say my first three are reversed and my next seven are normal. All right. So what did I say in the beginning? I expected, you know, there to be three or four reversals. So say I expect somewhere in this time period, I'm going to see a reverse normal reversed. Where do I line that up? How do I take my three samples that are reversed and my seven that aren't? How do I line that up to the geomagnetic polarity time scale? I mean, if you know the age of the rock, it's very easy to get the age of the rock from these data. So you have to have, <laughs> yes, exactly. Man, PMAG is the best. Uh, you have to have like an external date <laughs> to hang this on. To allow you to get a date. Yeah. So, yeah. therefore, Magstrat is useless. <laughs> you know, that's what it sounds like. But then you start realizing, well, that external date may have a certain uncertainty and this may have a certain uncertainty. But when I combine them, the overlap of those uncertainties, if I'm lucky, is smaller. So that's one thing. Yes. And the other thing is, how easy is it to get an exact age date in geology? Yeah, no, everything's relative. This it, formation's younger than this one. Right. And that is because, and there are lots of ways. We've talked about them on here, you know, several times. Um, and geochronology using any type of isotope data is the way to go. But not all rocks have the minerals that you need to do isotopic analysis on. Yeah. So... <laughs> You hope that somewhere in that 10 meter section, you have something you can do isotopic analysis on. So now I can hang that exact date and compare that to my stratigraphic section, compare that to the geomagnetic polarity time scale. And then I can say, okay, for sure, these reversed belong in this, we call them crons, in this cron, which has a number, these normal polarities belong in this subcron that's named. All our normal polarity subcrons are named and the reverse polarities are just numbered. So you can say, okay, this is where it belongs because I'm hanging this whole section on 
you know, this one thing that I know the exact age of. And in my case, the area that I'm in, the exact age comes from volcanic ashes. Hmm. Okay. So ashes are great um, because you can get all kinds of exact age dates on them. You can do argon, argon, you get these sanidine grains in there and you can do um, this argon, argon dating and get exact dates on those ashes. But also volcanoes aren't happening all the time. So in my 10 meter section, I've got one ash, but I still want to know what the rest of the 10 meters, what age it is. And this is where the geomagnetic polarity time scale helps. So it is weird because they all sort of reinforce each other. It is a little bit circular, (laughs) but I can do stuff like figure out, even though I want to know in the beginning, like what sedimentation rates are. Once I've hung my data on that exact date, I can actually kind of work them out backwards from that geomagnetic polarity time scale. And that's one of the checks that we do. So if I have seven meters of that section, that's a lot of, that's a lot of rock, right? Um, And that polarity cron that it's in is only like 500 years or something ridiculous. This is a ridiculous number. I know that something's wrong because there's no way that I could have deposited seven meters of section in 500 years. So Uh, something's, (laughs) yeah. So it's like something's wrong. The interpretation about the rocks is wrong, something like that. So it's all kind of, you're right that every single one of those pieces of data are checks and balances for using the magstrat. And what is kind of cool is, you know, the geologic times that we use on the geologic time scale, they're more event related, like a climate event or some Uh significant, like an impact Magstrat doesn't care. So, <laughs> so right. these are all very <laughs> different times. I think that's where you get some of the strength. You know, I said about the uncertainty as well. We know that it's a Permian age, so it's in this big band, but we know it's in this cron. Mm-hmm. So now it's in a smaller band. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So when we look at just the geomagnetic polarity timescale in general, um, the rocks that I'm looking at are in the Colorado River, the lower Colorado River basins. And they're really young. They're late Miocene and Pliocene in age, which is ridiculously young rocks. Um, It's like 5 million years old. Um, And (laughs) you line it up to this geomagnetic polarity time scale. And I'm laughing because when when you look at that, and I said they're all numbered. So they're all numbered. But we name the normal polarities. And they're named for just like... The geologic time scale. They're like named for the regions where you have constant deposition and therefore like you know really well what the polarity time scale was over that time period. And mine are all from Iceland. And so the names are so hard to say. <laughs> A lot of yokels. There are no vowels. Well, there are vowels, but there are lots of consonants together that I don't understand. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like my crons that I'm looking at are the Sigifal, which has lots of D's and J's, and then the Thvera, which Come has, again on that one? Yep, no vowels. <laughs> Thvera. <laughs> it has, yeah, it has the A at the end. Right. <laughs> <laughs> T-H-V-E-R-A. Um, right, so that's how we get those. But the... 
polarity time scale itself, like where do you have some rock that's constantly being deposited over a long time period that you know it's constant deposition? Like where does that happen? Oceans. Yeah, exactly. These are all from lavas at mid-ocean ridges. Because even though the it can change the rate, they're still constantly pumping them out. So this is where, yeah, this is where we get the um, chronology, the geomagnetic polarity timescale that we compare everything to. Yeah, so instead of going up section, you go across section. You, you sail your ship across the mid-ocean ridge. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky, you get symmetric bands on each side of it. Mm-hmm. And then if you assume that the extrusion was at a roughly constant rate, you can convert those band widths to time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and we can date basalts fairly accurately. So there's that too. So another yeah. reason that igneous beats said, look, Lehman, <laughs> it's been a rough week. Okay. Did I tell you about the football coach? Okay. <laughs> but what's the problem with that when we're looking at geologic time? How old is our oldest ocean crust? Do you Not know? Very, I mean, I don't know a number off the top of my head, but it gets recycled pretty frequently. Yeah, so Jurassic is as old of ocean crust as we have. And so there's a lot of rocks before the Jurassic. So now, and if you're like, what? Why? It's getting recycled. They're getting sucked into the subduction zones. And so now I challenge you to find a continental record that is as complete as the ocean record from, you know, the Holocene to the Jurassic, and it's very hard to do. So beyond the Jurassic, it's a bunch of disparate locations that we've cobbled together the geomagnetic polarity time scale for. Okay, so there is still <laughs> some some element of, <laughs> of, you know, duct tape mailing wire here. So much. <laughs> yeah, before the, yeah, in the Paleozoic, there's lots of duct tape and bailing wire on the geomagnetic polarity time scale. And, and the, it's so strange. We don't understand the time period. There's no cyclicity in the flipping of our of our dipole. There's no cyclicity in it because we've had millions of years and they're called supercrons where we've stayed. Well, what we think we've stayed the same polarity. Yeah. Well, I mean, we now think that the, the magnetic field, you know, caused by this chaotic turbulent flow is chaotic. It's kind of an astable oscillator that we don't really know when it's going to flop again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I love the empirical, uh, the empirical studies on this where they take like these big tubes and they have rotating metal discs on either side and they rotate it and they, they generate a magnetic field whose polarity flips and it flips just like the earth's, but just like the earth's there's no, you can't predict it. And you know, short plug, if you want to do this at home, uh, we have a kit. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real, real simple kit, you know, I would say for grade school uh, type kids. But uh, yeah, you can actually, you can't generate a magnetic field, but we take a magnetic and electric field and we generate fluid motion. There you go. So just Mm -hmm. the opposite. Yeah. It's, it's so strange. Yeah. So strange to me. So the behavior of it is a whole nother thing, right? That's, we've got magnetostrotropic 
electromagnetography. We've got paleomagnetism. We've got rock magnetic studies. And then you go into the whole, you know, dynamo studies, which is studying why it exists in the first place and the behavior of the magnetic field, because there's also intensities to talk about and all that other jazz, which is actually very hard to get from rocks is to get at the intensity of the magnetic field in Earth's past, which I know a few people we should interview to talk about that. Uh, yeah, definitely. Not yeah. us, though. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> I can, yeah, <laughs> talk with as much knowledge as I can about it. So it'll be about a five-minute show. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so that's um, a lot goes into Magstrat that you didn't think about, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure there's lots that I'm missing. But uh, And we could talk about the statistics. We can just talk about that another time. I'm, I've already done that pony show today so <laughs> <laughs> well you know i guess this is enough that could make you want to just take the rocks and just bash them into things yes that's right <laughs> which is a great lead into everybody's favorite segment of the show <laughs> office cowbell fun paper friday <laughs> yay um so the rocks that i was talking about my rocks are actually young enough to have bones in them and bones that might, you know, contain something good to eat like marrow. Mm, ribs. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about that fun paper that we did where that deer was eating the bones and cracking it and walking around with it in its mouth like a cigar, mm-hmm. sucking the marrow sucking out. On the marrow. <laughs> yeah. That I can't stop thinking about. <laughs> yep. <laughs> These fun papers have changed my life. I just want you to know that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, and whether they're ones that we find or ones that oh, you yeah. all find and send in, mm-hmm. uh, we're now that person at parties where somebody uh, says 100. something and, you, and you're like, actually, there was a study. And people what? <laughs> oh, man. If I had a nickel for every time I said that, I'd make more money than USC offered Lincoln Riley. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is another really interesting one. Um, I love it when we talk about human evolution. And so the, I'm trying to, there it is. Well, and, and hat tip to listener Xavier for sending this oh, in a excellent. while back. Uh, we do really get to them all. We just get so many. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so many from Daryl, but. <laughs> no, there is a significant Daryl section in the Google Doc. Um <laughs> Thank but, you, Daryl. I'm not making fun of that at all. <laughs> oh no, no, definitely. Yes, uh, <laughs> but we do we do have yeah uh, a, a little bit of a backlog the, still. The occasional, yeah. We'll get we'll get there. It's okay. Um, so this is in the Journal of Human Evolution: the manual pressures of stone tool behaviors and their implications for the evolution of the human hand by Williams Hatala et al. Right. So. The idea here is our hands are very dexterous. Uh-huh. And it right. has been thought that they became dexterous because we had to use tools, which makes sense. Uh-huh. Yep. Makes total I mean, sense. Okay. So now that always gets credited to doing things like cracking nuts. Okay. But lots of primate and primate adjacent things can crack nuts. So why don't they all have hands that look like ours? Exactly. So this team said, we wonder 
what are the pressures like different places on different fingers when you do a variety of activities and what of those may have actually forced our hand to evolve? Uh, you know, forced our hand. Uh, uh, <laughs> 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 I'm glad I pointed that one out. The snort was worth it. it um, <laughs> my friend and I say this all the time. I love it when it sneaks up on you. You know, when you got a good pun, it just pops out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, which of these activities, like cracking a nut or chipping rock or extracting marrow, causes more force on the hand and might have actually made this evolution happen. And so I also want to point to another fun paper that we did that broke down the caloric (laughs) intake of different parts of the human body. (laughs) So if you were to eat a human, what's the best thing to eat? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've been watching uh, a pretty interesting YouTube channel lately. That's by a mortician. (laughs) And (laughs) Uh, they recently talked about a flight where people crashed and uh, not many survived. And when they picked up the survivors, they were like, my, you look healthy. Healthy? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, well, well, what, uh, <laughs> well, what caused our hands to get so dexterous such that we could bash each other's skulls in? <laughs> And eat the best part, because I think the brain was one of the more caloric-dense things that you should eat, actually. But marrow is too, right? And so, like you said, lots of things can crack nuts. And I was actually surprised because, I don't know, I guess I try to crack walnuts, and those are, you can't crack a walnut with your hand. (laughs) That's hard. But I guess most nuts aren't that hard to crack. Almond, Brazil, hazelnut, macadamia nut, these were the types of things that were tried. Yeah, pecans aren't that hard to crack. So, so there you go. So, lots of things can crack that, but other th- things can't crack, you know, bones and stuff. So, what I knew that you would like when looking upon this is their cool sensors. And then they made these grad students. <laughs> they said <clearly>. volunteers. <laughs> mm, well, one of the volunteers' pictures is on the is a um, author on this paper. So, if they were just a volunteer for that and got an authorship. Good for this group. <laughs> right. Uh, and he's doing flint napping, which is really cool, right? Where you, you know, smash rocks together to create like arrowheads or something like that. And while wearing this weird device. Yeah. So there's all these little pressure pads, uh, two on the thumb, three on the first and second finger, two on the fourth and pinky finger that they would put on and then roll finger cots down over them. Mm-hmm. And then all the wires trailed across the back of your hand and went off to your friendly computer. There you go. And yeah, yeah record the force at all these points. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they they were able to say which part of the finger takes the most force, which finger takes the most force, and which activity results in the most force overall. And as it turns out, those were very strongly correlated. That's this is very interesting. And guess like, what takes the most energy? Yeah. Snapping bones, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Fight mm-hmm. Club is a hard life. <laughs> Don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this marrow one, it's a lot of pressure. It's like 70 kilopascals of pressure on your 
Was digit one thumb? I don't know. That's uh, I believe be, so. It's yeah. gotta be okay. Yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna convert that. Uh, that's ten pounds per square inch. Ten pound force per square inch. That doesn't okay. sound like a lot. But <laughs> go get a ten pound barbell and set it on a postage stamp on your finger. Yes, exactly. Pressure is a very deceiving quantity because it's not force. Mm-hmm. Yes, there you go. Yeah, that's why 15 PSI pressure can explode my magnetometer. <laughs> and everyone yeah, says, that's it, not much. Okay. A few, a few PSI <laughs> distributed os- across your chest is enough to implode your internal organs. Yeah. So weird, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a ton. And it's very clear. This Napping was also not sleeping. <laughs> K-N-A-P-P. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, uh, chipping rocks off of other pieces of rock off of other rocks by hitting them together. Right, I, to like make arrowheads or something. They didn't have a graph of this, but I would also like to see a graph of like activity versus number of swear words. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> I think it would correlate exactly to this pressure chart. I think though. it would. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. But it's like napping was a lot on the thumb, probably from holding and pushing the rock. But it wasn't as much on the other digits, which was also interesting. Not as much as marrow. Yeah, like you're backing up that that hit with a finger. Yeah. Though I was a little concerned. They only collected data at 200 hertz. Okay. Why? You're going to miss the peak force. No. I mean, why did they only collect? I, I'm assuming it was a limitation of the system. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's five milliseconds. Mm-hmm. You can have a lot of a lot of energy get transferred Change. in five milliseconds. Yeah, that is true. Now, I, I did find it interesting and maybe telling of this phenomena that the higher force uh, activities had larger variances associated with them. Mm. Now, that could mm. have been person to person variation, or mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, maybe some people really wailed on those rocks. Exactly. <laughs> But everybody, you know, it's going to take about the same amount of force to crack a almond. Right. Yeah. It's not like there's one almond that's way worse than the other ones. <laughs> right. So I was I was curious if it was an undersampling problem or not. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. This, uh, that's all for the next paper, I'm sure. <laughs> right. You know, or if I just don't know anything about, uh, let's see, what would this, this field be called? Kinesiology? Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Look at uh, you. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't know anything about this. And the biological energy transfer process actually takes place pretty slow. Uh, but right. it, seem, it seems slow to me. You know, when we're doing acoustics on things, you know, we're sampling in the tens of kilohertz. And that's generally not too hard. But I also don't know if those sensors could react that fast. To do that. Hmm. This is, uh, I feel like we should recreate this. <laughs> yeah. But we're going to have stuff like dog petting and, you know, <laughs> all that in there, too. You know, if we could find a way to strap some instruments on, on our dogs, oh. we would do it. I tied my ancient GPS, which was huge, to my dog and made her run to see, to clock her, basically. Yeah. I did that like 15 years ago. Nice. <laughs> uh-huh. It was impressive. <laughs> so, um yeah, I'm not above that. We should do this. So this is really interesting, though. Like, it's a very interesting thought that that could be, that could be why our hands are so different. 
Yeah. Maybe it's because yeah. we broke open the bones of the the animals that we killed. Yeah. And then ate their delicious marrow. Yeah. And now it's easy. You just order ribs. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you still have to work a little bit, but yeah. You don't have to kill it or make your own stone tool to kill it. Or cook it. Yeah. I mean, those little plastic silverers are hard to get open, but you don't need them for that, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need them for most ribs. Uh, I've had some uh, ribs where you needed a blowtorch. Okay, yeah, that's true. (laughs) And those big big ribs at Smokin' Joe's that are literally the size of a tray. Right. Delicious. (laughs) I got to go now. (laughs) I'm hungry, yeah. So let's... uh... (laughs) <laughs> Let's wrap this up. So uh-huh. if uh, if folks have measurements of the individual digital pressures, proximal and distal, that they have to exert to do any activity, uh, including crack open bones to extract the marrow, Shannon, how can they send that data in along with their methods and a complete time series analysis? And videos, hopefully. Um, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Occasionally, we're hanging out in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us in cowbells and fun papers and a little bit of money so we can interview other people occasionally. <laughs> if you would like to support us on Patreon, you can do so. Patreon.com slash don't panic geo and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science any opinions findings conclusions or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies